Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Mark Liebert. I've been here at the church for about seven years now. My wife sitting down here with the red sweater, she works in the office. You don't need to know me. She's very important. We have three children, and if there's something you need to know about me, it's that I write out my messages for several reasons. Um, One is so that I know how long it'll take. Second is I know what I want to say, and I can say it how I want to. And Thirdly, I believe the Spirit of God leads during preparation, as well as spontaneously, but preparation too. And the one thing I didn't write out was the name of my children, and in the first message today, I got them wrong. (laughs) So next time, note to self, write out the names of your children. I have three children. Please hold me accountable. Rachel is 20. She's in college. She's engaged to be married uh, January 1st of this year. It's exciting. Josh is nine. No, yes, he's 19. He's ni- he had a birthday. He had a birthday this week. Come on, he had a birthday this week. He's 19. He's also in college. They're both at Bryan College in Dayton, Tennessee. And I have a son, Joel, up there doing the AV work. Yes, yes. We are off to a good start. <laughs> I appreciate having the opportunity to preach today. Um, You know, we're fortunate at FCC. We have a senior minister who faithfully, accurately, and powerfully brings God's message to us each week. And I am extremely thankful for that. It's one of the things that attracted us to this church. Um, He spends a lot of time in it, digs deeply into God's word. That's hard to do. I can tell you that because I preach. And ask my wife the time I spent this week preparing. He does that week in, week out, week in, and week out. And I'm extremely thankful for him. So he needs breaks sometimes so he can recharge. All of us need that. He needs that as well. I'm honored to be able to preach today to help him. Tommy did the same thing last week. He's our associate minister. He did a great job preaching from Mark, the prior chapter, the end of four and all of chapter five. If you weren't here, let me do a quick summary of what Tommy taught. I thought it was very helpful. He taught that God had demonstrated his power in Jesus over four things. One was over nature. You remember he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Remember that? That would have been powerful to watch and be there. Number two, he has power over the spirit world. He cast the legion of demons out of the man possessed. They went into the pigs. They rushed into the sea. You remember that story. Third, he said Jesus demonstrated his power over sickness. You remember the woman who had the flow of blood? She just touched him and was instantly healed. And for 12 years, the doctors could do nothing for her. And then lastly, Jesus demonstrated his power over death itself when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead simply by saying, little girl, get up. (laughs) Wow, the power of his spoken word. But Tommy pointed out that in each miracle, the people were filled with fear. Remember that? Some at their surroundings, some at the power of God, but all filled with fear. And the message that Tommy gave us last week, the challenge, the big idea, was when life is overwhelming, I will trust Jesus. If you didn't get the message last week, listen to it. It's an excellent one. This week, we're going to continue with Mark chapter 6, the very next chapter. We're covering a lot of ground. It's 56 verses. I'm only doing 52. Look at me. I really cut it back. But one of the advantages of doing a big swath of scripture is you get the context. When we just take a little piece by itself, we get details, but we miss the forest because all we're seeing is the trees. What we're going to get today, I'm going to do my best to give us the trees, but also the big picture, the forest. And this week, 
Jesus will show his power again, but now in the face of increasing opposition. Opposition to his ministry, his person, and his message. And what the disciples will learn this week is who is this Jesus that they're following? And what does it mean for me to follow him? We often give you the big idea, the main point of the message up front. I'm going to build it throughout the message and give it to you at the end. You'll hear snippets of it, but you'll hear it clearly at the end because the passage builds and we get the main idea finally at the end. Let's jump in together. A lot of scripture. I'm going to look at Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Okay, there, he went away from there. He went away from the Sea of Galilee to his hometown. I'm going to throw a map up here for you to look at. Mark has told us in chapter 1 that Jesus is from the town of Nazareth. Where is that? Well, in the upper left-hand corner, that's Israel. And the part that's expanded is in the red box. That's what you're seeing in detail. So that's the northern part of Israel. Sea of Galilee is in the north. The Jordan River flows out of that all the way down to the Dead Sea in the south. Down in the south is where you find Jericho and Jerusalem, those big centers of population. Up in the north, it's more country villages in the Sea of Galilee area. If you look to the far bottom left, southwest corner of the big, big map, you'll see Nazareth. That's about 20 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus is from. That's his hometown. That is a thriving metropolis of 500 people. That's it. It's a little hamlet. Insignificant. That's where Jesus was raised. Jesus makes the point, or Mark in his writing makes the point that Jesus went there and his disciples followed him. You've got to set this up now. Understand, these disciples have been following Jesus. He's been doing miracles. He's teaching. He's raised people from the dead. Crowds are, are flocking to him. And now he's headed home. How exciting to get to go along with Jesus and see the local boy welcome home for all the powerful things he's been doing. Their anticipation level must have been high. Let's see what it's like to go home to Nazareth. So what was it like? Verse 2. And on the Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Just like the disciples expected, the Nazarene villagers were impressed by Jesus. They had heard of his miracles. But there's a problem, and we see it right away. They know Jesus well, and what do they call him? You see it? This man. That's not a good way to speak of Jesus. This man. Go on to verse 3. Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They knew his name. They knew his whole family's name. All his brothers they named. They knew Jesus' name, but they didn't use it because they didn't like him. They didn't name the sisters, by the way. Most people think it's because they were married. So at that point, they didn't use their name. Just, it's just the way it was in their culture. They were married off at that point. What's interesting is that they knew him too. Well, you ever heard familiarity breeds contempt? Which gives us an immediate point of application. Knowing a lot about Jesus is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. There's a lot of people in our world today, maybe you're one of them. You've heard a lot about Jesus. You can tell us lots of things about him. It's not the same thing as putting your faith in him. And notice that they call him son of Mary. We wouldn't know this in our American culture, 
but it was true of the Jewish culture, you called a man by his father's name. He would have been Jesus, the son of Joseph. Even if Joseph were dead, which is possible he was dead by now. But you would still call him Jesus, the son of Joseph. But they don't do that. The Nazarene villagers call him Jesus, son of Mary, the carpenter. Why did they do that? It was an insult. And it probably pointed back toward the circumstances of his birth, which were questionable in their minds. Right? Who was his father anyway? What's the story she concocted? So they insulted him, son of Mary. This is the reception he gets going home. The bottom line, Mark says, they took offense at him. The word offense is the word scandal. They were scandalized by him. They were offended him. Basically, they said, who does he think he is? Who does he think he is? He's just a local boy trying to make a name for himself out in the big bad world. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. It says Jesus could do no mighty work there, not because his power was limited, but because Jesus chose to exercise his power in cooperation with faith. And there was no faith in Nazareth. So he wasn't going to waste his time doing miracles because their minds were made up about him already. It wouldn't have done any good to impress them. They had already dismissed him. Well, you've got to think now back to the disciples' perspective. Remember, they were excited, anticipating, we're going home with Jesus, it'll be wonderful. They must have been surprised, disappointed, and probably shocked at the reception Jesus' hometown gave him. Instead of a homecoming party, they treated him with unbelief and even disdain. For the disciples, it was a warning early on that following Jesus was not always going to be easy. Following Jesus would have some cost in it. His hometown demonstrated that. Now at this point in our text and in Jesus' ministry, he does something we wouldn't expect. He takes these disciples who know very little and have spent very little time with them, and he sends He sends them out. He says, it's your turn. It's your turn to go out because you know nothing. (laughs) He sends them out. Verse 7, he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Remember, these are the same men who in chapter 1 misunderstood Jesus' mission. In chapter 4, they questioned his character and in chapter 5, they questioned his judgment. And now in chapter 6, he's sending them out to do the ministry. They were hardly seasoned veterans. Which brings us to a very good point of application. We get this idea that before God can use me in the kingdom, in the church, I have to attain to a certain level of knowledge and maturity, and then God can use me. Is that what Jesus did with his disciples? No. He sent them out saying, I'll be with you, and you'll learn in the process. You'll mature and grow by doing. You will gain by serving. Don't wait till you're ready. You'll never be ready. Go. God will use you. Speak to that friend at work, that neighbor, who you know needs Jesus. Don't wait for someone else to do it or someone who's more mature, more knowledgeable than you. God will use you. Just go. 
Verse 8. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So he asked them to travel light and to depend on the hospitality of the people that they would be speaking to, staying with. They were to depend on them for their needs, their food, where to live. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons we pay our ministers, because of the example set by Jesus here. So that they're not distracted by having to meet their needs. The people they minister to provide for them. That's what Jesus did with his disciples. That's what we do as a church. And if any place will not receive you, verse 11, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Interesting. Jesus sends them out. You can do it. I'm with you. Go for it. By the way, some of them will hate you. Oh, yay. He issues a warning. Not everyone will respond positively to you any more than they have to me. Again, a warning. Consider the cost if you're going to follow Jesus. It will not always be easy. Now, shaking the dust off your feet, that probably means nothing to you and me. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you how it was used. When the people of Israel traveled in other countries... They left Israel, they went to the surrounding area, and they came home to Israel. As they crossed back into Israel, they would shake the heathen dust off their feet so as not to pollute the Holy Land. Seems kind of silly to us, but that's how they thought of it. They were the people of God, and those outside were not. They were the heathens. And so they'd shake the dust off. Now get this. Jesus didn't send the 12 outside of Israel. He sent them to villages in Israel. So what's he saying? He's saying, if people will not accept you, then they're not accepting me. If they're not accepting me, then they're rejecting God. And if they're rejecting God, then God will treat them like you treat heathens. They are outside of his kingdom, outside of his will, because they have rejected me, even here in the land of Israel. It doesn't matter who you are. The person of Jesus and the message of Jesus, the message of Jesus are so critical that for you to reject that is to reject God himself. Verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the same message Jesus did in chapter 1. Repent and believe the good news. They heard him saying it. Now Jesus says, I'm empowering you to go do the same thing. Repent, teach. But also, they were given power. Did you catch that? They cast out demons and they anointed many with oil and they healed them, which means their ministry was in word and deed. Another model for you and me to follow today. You have a neighbor who you think needs to know Jesus. Have you spoken to him of your Savior? And have you loved them to show them the Savior? I know many of you have. It's word and deed. But there's another application for us here. I don't want to miss this one. Who's doing this ministry? The professionals? It's the disciples. They're tax collectors. They're fishermen. Which means 
that there's too much work to do in the kingdom for us to leave it to the paid professionals. Jesus is the professional, but he sends out tax collectors to teach the people about God. Every one of us needs to shoulder the load and help in this thing, this grand experiment we call the church, because there's too much work for it to be left to a couple professionals. All of us, you and me, with our gifting, with our abilities, with our experiences, with our backgrounds, with our perspectives, with the sufferings we've had and what we've learned and how God has taught us. God uses that and he takes you to minister to people. That's what God's calling us to. Now at this point in the text, Mark stops the story about the disciples' mission. He only has one more verse on it. It's down in in verse 30. In the meantime, he puts in a seemingly unrelated story about Herod and John the Baptist and how John the Baptist died. This is a technique in Mark's writing called the Markan sandwich. Tommy talked about it last week. Scott talked about it before. What's a sandwich technique? You're telling one story, you stop it, you tell another story, you finish it, and you go back and you conclude the first story to make a point. And we'll see what that point is. Let's dig in. By the way, the last thing we knew about John the Baptist was chapter 1, verse 14. He was put in prison. The next thing we hear is this, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Now stop. This King Herod is not the same King Herod the wise men went to when Jesus was born. This is his son. King Herod the Great had four sons. All four of them got a fourth of his kingdom. They were called tetrarchs. They ruled a fourth. He is called Herod Antipas, and he is not technically a king. He reports up to Rome. He's not in charge totally, but he sure liked the title of king, and he preferred it when people used it, and he styled what he did after the emperor. So we don't know if Mark is using king because he liked that title or kind of to mock him a little bit. We're not sure but he's not truly a king. What you need to know about him is he's ambitious, he's immoral, he's arrogant, he's cruel, and he was like that for 40 years in charge. Eventually, he was banished by the emperor Caligula in AD 39 because he wanted the title of king, and he went to Rome to get it. That was a bad move. Let's continue reading. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. There were several views circulating about Jesus. The one Herod latched onto was that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. You know why? Number one, he had a guilty conscience. (laughs) He sees John everywhere. Because we're going to find out he killed him for no reason. And number two, they weren't contemporaries, Jesus and John. We think of Jesus being baptized by John in the Jordan. That's all true. But Jesus didn't begin his ministry in Galilee until after John was put in prison. So they weren't seen together. So Herod wouldn't have known of two people. He would have known about John the Baptist, puts him in prison, and now there's this prophet speaking again. So you could see how in his superstitious mind, it was just John raised from the dead. Continue on. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. 
and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So Herod had put John in prison because they told him he shouldn't have married his brother's wife. His brother was still alive. His brother's name is Philip. He was one of the other tetrarchs. He was still alive. So Herodias had divorced Philip to marry Herod. You've got to give props to John the Baptist. Sometimes I think we are timid and we don't say things we should, and sometimes we say things we shouldn't. Then you come across a John the Baptist who says, that's wrong, you shouldn't have done it. To Herod, his life could be in danger, and it was. But he said what he felt God wanted him to say. Herod's new wife was Herodias. Apparently everybody likes the name Herod. She wasn't thrilled with John for saying this about her and Herod in their new marriage. So she wanted to kill him. But Herod himself knew John was a righteous man, and he put him in prison as a compromise. Well, how does that help? He can't go around saying embarrassing things anymore. <laughs> He's in prison. It sort of placates his wife. I've shut him up. He's in prison. But he kept him alive because he was a righteous and holy prophet, and he liked to hear him every now and then. But again, notice Herod did not have faith. He was just curious about Jesus. You see that? He liked to listen to him. It's not the same thing as believing in him. I hope that's not you today. But an opportunity came, verse 21, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Okay, Herod throws a party on his birthday. That's not self-centered at all. And he invites the who's who of Galilee to come. Herodias, his new wife, has a daughter by Philip in her mid-teens. Her name, Josephus tells us, the historian, is Salome. And some of you may have seen that in different movies. That's where we get the name from Josephus. He tells the same account, gives different details. Salome is her name, mid-teen years. She comes and dances for Herod and his drunken friends. And I'm not going to say any more than we can probably imagine the type of dancing that was going on. And I'll leave it at that. So Herod is so pleased that he offers to give her whatever she wants. We aren't to understand that literally. This is a way men spoke when they were trying to impress people. Up to half my kingdom. He just means, hey, I really like you. What do you want? Name something. Verse 24. And she, Salome, went out and said to her mother, Herodias, what, for what should I ask? And she, Herodias, said, the head of John the Baptist. Ooh. Didn't see that one coming. And she, Salome, came in immediately with haste to the king and said, asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I'm sorry, this is a little gruesome, which is another reason we know we're reading real accounts. <laughs> Herodias has clearly been biding her time, clearly been waiting for an opportunity, and it's likely she manipulated all of these circumstances she knew it was Herod's birthday coming up. She knew what he liked to do, how he liked to boast and impress people. She knew he liked to get drunk. She knew all this and set it up so that she could get her revenge on John the Baptist. Well, it works because Herod has no backbone. Verse 26, And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Right, because breaking your word is worse than killing an innocent man. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. The sick family. Herod regrets his promise, but he made it under oath, and he doesn't want to lose faith in front of his friends. So he goes ahead and kills the holy and righteous prophet, John the Baptist, just to save his reputation. This is the end of life on this earth as we know it for John the Baptist, who, by the way, was the cousin of Jesus. Remember that? Elizabeth. The man of whom Jesus said in Matthew 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That was Jesus' take on his cousin. It's a sad account of how he came to his death. Verse 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. These are John's disciples that heard of it, who eventually would follow Jesus. They come, they do a courageous thing, they ask for the body, they take it, they give him a proper burial. Now, now, after all that, after that gory and detailed account of how John lost his life, now Mark finishes the story of the disciples being sent out two by two and returning from their mission. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So I have a question for you. You're reading this in your personal Bible study, and you see this little sandwich going on here. He sends the disciples out. He tells us the story about John the Baptist dying, and he throws in a conclusion the disciples returned. Why do you do that? You're the Bible student. Why do you do that? Why did Mark write the story that way? Why do you do it? It's for a purpose. What's the purpose? not asking you to speak publicly in church. I just want you to think. Because he wants us to understand that being a disciple is costly. It isn't for the faint of heart. Remember what he said so far in chapter 6. Jesus goes to his hometown, the people who know him best and should trust him and love him, and they reject him outright. Then he sends his disciples out with a warning. They will reject you too. They will reject you too. And then as an example, let me tell you about John the Baptist. The greatest born among women, according to Jesus, here's how he met his end. Being faithful to God and his message. Mark is saying, this is what a disciple can expect. If you follow Jesus, consider the cost. Consider the cost. It won't always be easy. So, I'm preparing this message for today. I reach this point in my study and a question pops into my mind. Then why would anyone follow Jesus? (laughs) If that's what I have to expect, and that's not what I hear on TV, by the way, and I'll just go ahead and say it, it's not your best life now. And you can look that up later if you need to. It's persecution. Then why would anyone follow Jesus? Why would you want to? Why risk your life? Why take on the chance of being persecuted for your faith? Why do it? It's the question you have to ask in the text right now. And the good news is, Mark knows you're going to ask that question, and he gives us the answer. Let's keep reading. We're going to pick up the pace and read a big chunk now. Verse 31. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. 
When it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away, send the people away, to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he, Jesus, answered them, You give them something to eat. (laughs) Don't you love that? And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's one man's wage for an entire year. Salary of one man. And he said to them, Okay, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. He said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Wow. That's pretty impressive. I'm going to throw up on the screen here a couple pictures of the Sea of Galilee because I want to help you understand what's going on. We're thinking, well, how do you see, how do the people see him going and they run around to where he's going to be? This is how. Picture Jesus on this side, headed over there diagonally to that desolate area where there's no towns. You can see any little boat. I see four right now. The people saw where he was going and all the people in all their curiosity and interest ran around and met him at the desolate place on the other side. Is there another picture? I don't know if that's the first, just another angle for you. You can see how it gets more desolate as you go around. There's all these towns here. Of course, this picture is not from AD 30, just to be clear. (laughs) Now, we know this miracle well. It's the feeding of the 5,000, which, by the way, it says men in the Greek. It's male. There had to be women and children there. It could have been as many as 10,000 people. It's a big miracle. Did you know? This is the only miracle Jesus did that's recorded in all four gospel accounts. It's the only one. So there's something critical about this particular miracle. And Mark inserts it here after that question we just asked, why would anyone follow Jesus? For a very particular reason. But to understand it, we have to look at two phrases he uses which point back to the Old Testament. Knowledge of the Old Testament is key in understanding the New Testament. So let's look at the first phrase is the desolate place, which you see Mark says three times. He says it in 31. He says it in verse 32. He says it in verse 35. It was a desolate place, a wilderness. And then he says in verse 34 that Jesus saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Those phrases are critical. Let's look at the desolate place first. This desolate place or wilderness is a direct reminder of Moses and the people's experience in the wilderness when he led them out of Egypt to the promised land, the 40 years of wandering. Why do we say that? There's lots of similarities here between what Moses did then and what Jesus does now. And these aren't just made up. Mark is drawing parallels for a reason because he didn't have to put all these details in. First of all, let's go back to Deuteronomy 18, and I want to show you a prophecy that God gave to Moses. Moses is at the end of his life, and God says to him, I will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Jesus does that. Moses speaks God's words to the people in the wilderness. Jesus does the same thing. If you look in verse 34, it says he taught them many things in this wilderness. Many things he taught them. So he's speaking on behalf of God as Moses did. 
Then notice, Moses divided the people into 50 and 100. Did you know that? Look up Exodus 18.21 on your own time or write it down. When they were in the wilderness, Moses divided them into groups of 50 and 100. Jesus divides this people into groups of 50 and 100 in this wilderness. Coincidence? Moses provided for the people in that wilderness through bread from heaven called manna. Jesus provides for the people in this wilderness through bread coming from somewhere. (laughs) You see the parallels. We're supposed to see the parallels. But now let's go on to that other phrase, sheep without a shepherd. This also goes back to Moses. I'm going to throw up on the screen Numbers 27. This is the end of his life, and Moses is asking God to take care of the people. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as, you see it? Sheep that have no shepherd. And then we'll skip ahead a few hundred years to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 34. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. Now listen. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Now David is long gone. He's dead and buried by this time. So he's not talking about David literally. Continue, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Well, that's interesting. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely, where? In the wilderness and sleep in the woods. These are well-known passages to the Jews. Well-known. Because they are prophecies. Mark is deliberately setting the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in the context of these prophecies. The wilderness and Jesus as the sheep of the shepherd. Uh, No. Jesus as the shepherd of the sheep. But I got my kids' names right. (laughs) He's deliberately pulling from those well-known Old Testament prophecies. He didn't have to do that. He could have easily said, Jesus fed 5,000 people. That's impressive. That's impressive but he draws from these Old Testament passages. Why? Why is he drawing from the Old Testament passages? Because he's saying something further about Jesus. He's not just a miracle worker, a wonder man. Mark is saying this, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament prophecies you know well. So who is this Jesus? He is the second Moses that you were waiting for. He is the true king from David's line, the prince. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the leader of a new people in a new exodus. He is the mouthpiece of God that speaks my words. He is the covenant maker. He is the one who brings peace. He is the giver of rest, and he is the provider of their needs, their bread. In short, he is what? The Messiah. That's what Mark is saying. He is the Messiah. So, let's go back to the question we asked after the death of John the Baptist. Why would anyone follow this Jesus and risk persecution or death? Why? Why? Because of who He is. Because He is the Messiah of God, the promised Savior of the world. That's why. So follow Jesus, despite the cost, because you know who He is. Now that should be enough. We could close the sermon right here and go home. We're not going to. Don't, no, 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 no. 
Because Mark drives it home with one further point. He has one more important thing to say about this Jesus in answering that question. Why follow him? One more thing. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Perhaps even more famous than the feeding of the 5,000 is Jesus walking on water. You don't have to be a Christian to know that story. Right? Everybody knows that. Only the disciples witnessed the miracle, but everybody knows about Jesus walking on water. It's impressive. He walked on water. But, but to understand what Mark is saying, we again have to understand the Old Testament because of two phrases Mark uses. Again, Mark is saying something when he writes this and puts these accounts together in the way he does it. He's not just haphazardly writing things down. So I want to point out the first key phrase is what Mark says in verse 48. He says, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now, if you were a good Jew, you knew Job chapter 9. Put that up. Job 9, verse 8. This is a reference to God, Job speaking. He, God alone, stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Whoa. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. You can see where Mark is going with this. Only God walks on water. And then that phrase passes by. I mean, what, what, does he just want to get to the other side? No, 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 no. That phrase passes by is very important. He passed by in the Old Testament to show his glory. Two different times, with Moses and Elijah. With Moses, if you put up Ezekiel 33, Moses said, God, show me your glory. Moses had no idea what he was asking, by the way. Show me your glory. God said, I can't show you my face. If I show you my face, you'll die. But I'll tell you what. Okay, God doesn't talk like that flippantly. You understand. I will put you in a cleft of the rock. What does it say? And my glory passes by. I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. He did that and what happened to Moses? His face glowed, remember? And the people were afraid of him. Now imagine what kind of glory Moses saw if the people were afraid of Moses. It was the glory of God when he passed by. Elijah, same experience. 1 Kings 19. Elijah's on the run. He's discouraged. Jezebel's after him. And what happens? God comes to encourage him. He's at the, he says, just take my life. It's over. I don't want to live anymore. And God, how does God encourage Elijah? And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. The Lord showed up sent his presence to encourage him. He passed by. Do you see that phrase, passed by? You think Mark just randomly threw that in there? No. He passed by. Mark is specifically using the same words that Job, Moses, and Elijah in the Old Testament used about God. 
when he's talking about Jesus. And remember, Moses and Elijah were in the transfiguration with Jesus. They are the two greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And God passed by his glory to show them. One final key phrase, and Mark will wrap up what he's trying to say, and so will this Mark. The second key phrase is found in verse 50. Jesus responded to their fear by saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Here is where, knowing only English, we miss something. I'm going to take us back to Exodus 3, back when God first appears to Moses and says, I want you to go back to Egypt. Say, let my people go. And Moses says, yay, I was hoping you would say that. No, he doesn't. He was very fearful. He made all sorts of excuses. And one of his excuses was, I don't even know who you are, God. Verse 13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am is the name Yahweh. It is the personal name of God. It means I am the self-existent one. Remember, everything else in this universe derives its being from something else save one, God. God is the only self-existent thing in the history of the universe. We are all derived from something else. Everything you see comes from something else, save God alone. He is self-existent. It is the best way to describe who he is, the self-existent one. I simply am. You feel the weight of that? Now, what did Jesus say when he crossed by the disciples? You don't know it until you read it in the Greek. And I don't read Greek, but I can read commentators who read Greek. Jesus said this. He said, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. It literally reads, I am, in the Greek. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. In other words, the I am is here. Yahweh is here. You see me walking on the water, treading on the waves? I am is here. Take heart, God is here. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Mark is putting this together so we understand this Jesus is not just a prophet, a miracle worker, the next in the line of the succession of... He is Yahweh himself. He is the personal God of Israel. He is the self-existent one. He is the Lord of creation. He is the God of the universe. Whoa. That is what Mark is telling you and me. So put his message together. Put his message all together, and this is his message. Follow Jesus despite the cost. Despite the cost. Because Jesus is God Almighty, the great I Am. And how do the disciples react? And we'll close with this. this verses 51 and 52. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Oh, guys, guys, ah! Why does Mark say they didn't understand the loaves? Go back to the feeding miracle. They were involved in the entire miracle. As the day is getting late, they see the coming problem, and they go to Jesus to say, uh, we got a problem here. You need to dismiss them because we're not going to be able to feed them. 
Jesus knows that's going to happen, but he's waiting for the disciples to become aware of the problem. Then what happens? He says to them, okay, you give them something to eat. They couldn't give them something to eat. Why would he do that? He wants them to see the predicament they're in. There's nothing they can do. But here's an idea. Maybe the one who recently calmed the waves of the storm can help. I don't know, just maybe. Just maybe. He then said, so how much food do the people have? They're like, they don't have any food. He's like, go and see. Why did he make them go see? So they would know the miracle that takes place in just a couple minutes is not because the people are like, well, I brought some stuff too. Let me share with you. They had nothing. The whole crowd had five loaves and two fish. That's it. Jesus wanted them to know that. And then who does he have hand out the food? The disciples. Can you imagine? Uh, thanks. Here, take some and you take some. And I've only got a, well, there's enough for you too. And I'm going to, well, you can have a little more. And you, what is going on? Can you imagine as they watched the miracle take place in their very own hands? And then when it was all said and done and everybody's full, he says, go pick up the basketfuls. And they get 12 baskets. Astounding miracle. The disciples were part of that entire process. So if anyone should have understood who Jesus was and what he did, it's the disciples. And they don't get it. They don't understand he's more than just a prophet. He walks on water to them and says, I am. And they don't get it. Because their hearts were hard. Now, thankfully, they weren't hard forever. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be here today because they faithfully brought the, word, the message. But at this time, they're hard. So can I conclude by asking you, is your heart hard? It's a legitimate question, isn't it? Are you struggling to believe that Jesus is all that? I mean, I said a lot about Jesus today. Are you struggling to believe that? Or maybe you do believe but you're struggling to be faithful as a follower. It's hard to obey sometimes. Maybe you're afraid of the cost. We've been talking about the cost all day long. Maybe that scares you. It scares me too. It scares me too. But the message for us from Mark today, it's the same message I preached myself all week long. Follow Jesus despite the cost. Because Jesus is God Almighty, the great I Am. That's the big idea for today. Follow Jesus despite the cost. Because Jesus is God Almighty, the great I Am. And just like Tommy did last week, can I ask you to personalize that? I will follow Jesus despite the cost. Because I know that Jesus is God Almighty, the great I Am. Amen? Let's pray. Holy and righteous Father, we thank you for...